we're back, Dave. It's been a nice oh. little summer recess. Oh. <laughs> it feels good to be back. It does. We're back from our 1975 hiatus. There were a few shows played, but they really weren't for the the audiences that weren't used to seeing. We played at the Great American Music Hall in front of some record executives and other friends and family, but that was about it. Um, we had a lot of Working Man's Pod just not recorded, but um, no, nothing recorded about the Grateful Dead. Uh, how does it feel to be back on the mic? It feels good. I mean, this summer has been crazy busy. Um, I'm coming in from Alabama. I'll be here for a month, um, sent here for work. So a true Alabama getaway for me. What about you? I'm not in the middle of a getaway, but it's been a busy summer for me as well. I'm actually very excited. This So we're recording this on a Sunday. And this weekend and the next four, I believe, my wife and I are both at home. We don't have any uh, any visitors. And so we kind of just get to recharge the batteries during uh, the hottest part of the year here in North Carolina. It's like too hot to do anything except for hang out in the air conditioning and listen to Grateful Dead music. <laughs> What more could you want? Yeah, exactly. So uh, part of what we were both doing with all of our travels was seeing a lot of Dead & Company shows. So without further ado, let's get into the days between. There were days, there were days, there were days been a long time since we last talked with you guys uh, aside from on twitter and instagram a couple of emails but for the most part it's been a, a while since we've last dropped an episode we mentioned it in our last one we were going to take a little time off uh, we both had a lot of travels in that time i saw three and three dead and co shows uh, we did a quick episode about the one in cincinnati which was a great great concert and then I saw them in Hartford. And then you and I saw them together. Uh, one of the two nights that you went to at City Fields in New York, I caught the second night, the final night of the 2022 tour. And we just had a great time. So maybe maybe that's the, the topic du jour when it comes to the days between. Yeah, got to see a show with you, which is always good. Um, I was also there Friday night for night one. And then I was supposed to be there at Saratoga um, that was the show that they canceled due to John Mayer's father's health concerns. And since we were driving over to Albany, New York anyway, Mo was playing a free show in like the Albany Plaza. So still saw a jam band that night. Not the one I thought I would be, but caught Mo. Now I'm a Mo fan. So a moron show. A moron. Yes. Just goes to show just even if plans change, live music is always a good time. Yeah, absolutely. We had a great time at City Field. I'm glad that you enjoyed your first Mo show. They are a favorite of mine. I've seen them a bunch of times. They were really the first jam band that I got into. And uh, if any of you guys who are listening are Morons, you'll know that their lead guitarist, Chuck, suffered a stroke last year and has been away from the band for almost a year now. And so they've got two, I think, new guitarists who fill in for Chuck. I listened to the show that you saw in Albany. It was really good. I liked the set list. If you have never listened to Mo, check them out. They're really good. A good way to get into them maybe would be there's a show that they played, I think, in 2016 with Phil Lesh where the entire first set is Grateful Dead songs. And then the second set, they kind of do a mix of Dead songs and Mo tunes. So give them a listen. They're really good. Chuck is an absolute shredder on the guitar. They do a lot of fun covers and 
just interesting stuff, and they're a really good band. Dead and Co. Even also better a really band. Good band. Yeah. <laughs> Man, they were cooking at City Fields. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bertha opener on night one was just electric, and then you know the whole run that we saw capped off by the the just look of shock on both our faces with that deal encore. I mean, we just were like, what is going on in the best way? Um, So yeah, they were just, they were something else from start to finish. Yeah, they were great. And it's, it was an interesting experience for me because I've heard deadheads talk about like going to shows that were quote unquote bad shows or when they listen to the recording after the fact, they're like, Oh man, that was kind of not it. But in the moment when you're so excited about everything that's going on, you don't even notice it. Listening to the recording from the 16th, uh, that's July 16th, 2022 at City Field, Bob's voice is done. Like, (laughs) I mean, it is, it's completely shot. And credit to him for going out there and giving it his best anyway. They, I think that they adjusted, I think that they adjusted the set list to be more John centric, more mayor centric because Bob's voice was struggling a little bit. But like, for example, a good exemplification is Ramble on Rose. If you listen to that from night two at City Field, it's vocally a really tough showing for Bob. In the moment, you and I were both saying like, is this the best Ramble on Rose <laughs> Dead & Co. has ever played? <laughs> the music, the playing was amazing. Yeah, a- it was. And, and so in the moment, I could not have told you that Bob's voice sounded bad. But my, my yeah, sister, yeah. who my sister who had never been to a dead show, she was on it from the jump. She was like, what is going on with this guy? And I didn't even know what she was sit- talking about in the moment. I mean, the, the, the acoustics at a baseball stadium are also kind of odd. It's hard to like really clearly hear their voices, I think. But I don't know. I mean, you it's just want to hear when you and I are like screaming every word because we know all the words. <laughs> we're so happy to be there. So that's why I didn't know. I was like, I was just singing the whole time. And then on a re-listen, it was like, oh, yeah, yikes. Yeah, but I mean, it just does not take away in any way in the moment from what was just such a great show. I think that that was probably the best Dead & Co. show I've been to in person as far as like top to bottom energy. The crowd was so good. Absolutely. On it night two. Yeah. On it. Singing along with everything, packed house, like not a, I mean, they probably should have done take a step back at some point because the, the floor seating was jam packed. The entire, the entire stadium was filled with people. I mean, great showing by the New York heads. Shakedown was a lot of fun, even though it poured rain and was basically flooded out. So anyway, that's a long description of what I think was probably my most favorite day during the days between was seeing dead and co with Dave, uh, with our significant others. My sister was there, our friend, Nick, his significant other. We had a good, we had a good crew and you had a bunch of college friends that you got to, uh, pregame with in the lot. So it was like a big, big family reunion, a big love fest. Yeah, it was. That's what it should be. So, uh, anything else on that, Dave, or should we get on with the show? I think we got to get on with the show, man. We got two shows to talk about (laughs) that. We do. Let's get on with the show. Let's 
I should have said, let's get on with the shows, Dave, because like you said, this this episode, we're talking about Dave's Picks, volume 43, and it's a, a double dip. We've got one show from Sunday, November 2nd, 1969 at the Family Dog on the Great Highway or Family Dog at the Great Highway in San Francisco, a hometown show. And then about seven weeks later, we've got one Friday night, December 26th. 1969 at the McFarlane Auditorium at Southern Southern Methodist University, SMU, in Dallas, Texas. Man, all right, so let's set the stage. Who's in the band? Same band for both shows. You got two drummers. Billy and Mickey are both in the folds. You got Tom Constanton, TC, on the keys, and you got Pigpen on the ones and twos. <laughs> Pigpen is singing, he's rapping, he's playing the harmonica and some percussion along the way. And then obviously Jerry, Bobby, and Phil, because they're always in the band. So you got that's the the late 69 Primal Dead arrangement. Those guys are playing both shows and um they're both some there's some good shows. Let's quickly talk about the packaging. So Dave's Picks Volume 3 comes in the familiar trifold or kind of quadfold paper CD case that you're familiar with if you've gotten other Dave's picks. The cover art, you've got the same artist in residence who is on volumes 41 and 42. He's doing some great work. And it's a pretty cool cover art, I think. So it's mostly purple with some stars in the background. This artist has this kind of cool thing that he does with lines. I remember it from the kind of here comes sunshine look of volume 42 that was at Winterland where there are these black lines like pinstripes almost along the front cover. This one they wrap all the way around the cover. You've got a big black star, a dark star in the middle of the album art and then you have two guitars crossing each other. One is an electric guitar, one is an acoustic guitar which is kind of cool. Uh, and evocative of things to come. And then you have a long-haired, um, redhead, kind of hippie-looking chick doing like a hoedown dance with a skeleton wearing a cowboy hat, vest, and his finest Lee dungarees. So it's kind of a cool thing where you have the electric guitar crossing over with the acoustic guitar, which is what you'll get during these shows. You have the San Francisco hippie dancing with the Dallas, Texas cowboy uh, skeleton. And it, you know, kind of shows what it's all about. Um, Inside the books, you have uh, two different reviews of Live Dead, which was their latest album at this time. And then inside you have the CDs with the dark stars on them. Below the CDs you have on the one panel, um, you have another Live Dead review. And then the next three, the hippie's face, the two guitars crossing, and then the skeleton's head on the last one. Some really cool liner notes in this one. They were written by the curators of the Owsley Stanley Foundation. You may know him better as Bear. He was the recording artist who captured all of this music and the dead's earliest fundraiser is not the right word. Benefactor is maybe more accurate. Um, He was their recordist during these shows and captured the sound beautifully and his I believe it's his son um, or maybe two of his sons they found uh, they didn't bear found these these recordings in a banana box according to the liner notes in the dead's vault Um, and as he was leaving the vault he said to Dave Lemieux hey go check out those boxes there's some good stuff in there Dave looked at it recorded or you know made notes about it and then as they were cataloging it and archiving it recently 
they noticed this 11-2 show as a, a good one to potentially put out as an official release. According to Dave Lemieux, it was just not long enough to be a standalone release, so they knew they were going to have to pair it with something else. This 12-6 show, it's from pretty much the same time period, late 1969. You've got some unique stuff with one of the earliest Live Dead acoustic recordings, and so they said, let's smash these together. It makes for four hours of great Grateful Dead music, and so that is how it came into our hands, so the story goes. So, great packaging. Dave, the artwork, if you can bring your mind back to the three that we've gotten this year, um, where does this one rank? You had the the Terrapins in Baltimore with the big hairdos in front of that venue. You had the pirate ship coming into San Francisco and Winterland, and then you have this one. Where does this one uh, stand for you? I think it's honestly third out of three so far. I think the Terrapins one from volume 41 is just so interesting with like the amount of embedded things on that album for example the fact that like the beehive hairdo was a a maryland thing that you know nothing i knew before that set came in purple is my favorite color so like i'm i'm really inclined to give it to it um when you listen to this though the artwork makes so much more sense like it pairs with the music i think better because of the acoustic set from the december show but just in terms of visual art i would put it number three out of three this artist's name is matt j adams he's their artist in residence for 2022 so we've seen three of his four album covers i think i agree with you i think that this one and the one for winterland that we got in the spring I think that those two pieces of album art kind of stand maybe not side by side, but I definitely agree with you that they're a, a rank, like a rung below the Terrapins one. Like you said, there's so much detail there and so many, like every little tiny square centimeter of the album art almost had something new and interesting to discover. And um, so, yeah, I think that was great. I do really like this one though. It's, you know, I think that Matt, I'll just say he's three for three. I think that all three album album covers are really good. It's just that I think that the first one that he did with the Terrapins is like a like one of the three or four best Dave's Picks covers of the 43 show run, the 43 CD run. And I think that Helen uh, at Zazcorp, who did the ones last year, I think that she also was four for four. Hers were great. They just do a great job of finding these artists. So really a ton of credit to them. Um, them meaning the producers of this, of these releases and to the artists for coming up with such cool, unique things. Um, this one is a bit more simple. There's not as much going on in the background and things like that, but it does tell a cool story. And I like the dark star in the background. I think that's a cool touch because we do get two monster dark stars during this release, which is great. All right. So let's talk about what's going on in late 1969. The top album in the land during both of these dates was Abbey Road. It, coincidentally enough, it began its run as the number one album in the U.S. on November 1st, the day before the first show, and it it ended its run on December 27th, the day after the second show. So we are in, that, maybe that's why they chose these two shows, because they bookend what I'll call the Abbey Road era in America. <laughs> um, so... Uh, it was unseated on December 27th, 1969 by Led Zeppelin II. 
Um, so the top Billboard song in 1969, despite the Beatles being on the top of the album chart, it's a throwback. Elvis with Suspicious Minds is the number one, right? Very interesting. And another throwback that was on um, 11-2 on 12-26, it's Someday We'll Be Together by Diana Ross and the Supremes. So de- definitively more mid-60s and early-60s vibes at the top of the charts back then. Now, there are some other songs around the top of the charts that are more, I think, indicative of what's going on in the culture. Uh, I shouldn't say the culture, but maybe in the subculture um, In at this time. You have I Can't Get Next to You by The Temptations. That's a great song. Leaving on a Jet Plane by Peter, Paul, and Mary. Down on the Corner and Fortunate Son by CCR. Um, that was number three, I think. And Come Together by the Beatles was number four um, in December. Birthdays. All right. So on 11-2, probably the most relevant one for Deadheads is Neil Casal, a musician who has a ton of overlap with the Grateful Dead, the Grateful Dead family. His music played as fans were entering... Um, the Fair of the Wealth shows, and I think during the set break as well. He's a good friend of Phil's and Bobby's. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away not too recently, I think within the last few years. Also, Sidney Ponson's birthday is November 2nd. Shout out to Yankees legend Sidney Ponson. David Ponson pitched the last game that I saw at the old Yankee Stadium. There's a little Sidney trivia for you. Rip. <laughs> <laughs> David Schwimmer on 11-2, Nelly um, hey, of St. Lunatics fame and, you know, one of the early kind of pop rap people and also singer Katie Lang on 11-2. While we're on St. Saint- one of the more stacked birthday dates that we've had on this show. You really That's hold great. a lot of, you've got a lot of weight in the Sidney Ponson <laughs> birthday, I think. No, but I mean, David Schwimmer's successful too. Like, that's a, that's a pretty good one. It's not, it's pretty good. I like this next one even a little bit better though. So 1226, another St. Louis legend, much like Nelly, Ozzy Smith, Hall of Fame shortstop for the St. Louis Cardinals. James Mercer, very talented singer and songwriter in the modern day. Lars Ulrich of Metallica. But here's what I like about 1226. It's also Boxing Day for our Canadian fans. And Boxing Day is a holiday in other in other countries around the world too. But even better, it's St. Stephen's Day throughout much of Europe. Very Grateful Dead holiday indeed. Only one death that I think is worth talking about from uh, these dates. And unfortunately, I didn't write down if it's 11-2 or 12-26. I think it's 12-26, but I'm not certain. Mississippi John Hurt died on that day in 1966. Now, you might be thinking, I don't know who that is, but you do know some of his music. He is the earliest artist who recorded a song involving Stagger Lee. So, I mean, that is a tale that has, as we talked about a few episodes ago, when we talked about our first Stagger Lee, that has just, you know, infiltrated popular music and has been re-recorded and rehashed by a million artists in the 70 years since Mississippi John Hurt put it down. The Dead covered his Ballad of Casey Jones uh, a few times, including once just a little while after these shows on August 5th, 1970. Uh, You can find that in the archive. We'll put a link in the show notes. That one Jerry introduces by saying, This is Casey 
Casey Jones, but it's a whole other Casey Jones. It's a whole other Casey Jones. Jerry also played in JGB and other side side projects of his Spike Driver Blues, and the song Candyman is loosely inspired by Mississippi John's Candyman Blues. So really an influential artist for a lot of the Grateful Dead's music and a lot of the music around this time. You know, you have Casey, their Casey Jones, which is about the same person as the ballad of Casey Jones. Both of those songs would come out on albums in 1970, right around this time. And so kind of interesting that, that, you know, we'll give him a shout out. I mean, I'm not sure if we'll do a show that's on his birthday. So this is as relevant a date as any to talk about Mississippi John Hurt. All right, 1969. Dave, this is the second time we've talked about 1969, so I I don't think that we need to belabor this point. I'll just give a couple of headlines from the dead in 1969, and I'll say that if you want more of a holistic picture of what was going on for the band in 1969, go check out our episode from Boston. It's episode four from April 21st, 1969. It was in the middle of a four-night run in, in Boston between, I think, the 20th and the 23rd. Uh, All four of those shows are great. Go check any of them out. But it is worth noting that 1969 is the band's busiest touring year. They played 156 shows. They were playing pretty much every night in San Fran when they weren't on the road. 23 states in Canada. They were all over the country. And this second show is kind of, you know, indicative of that. Working Men's Dead songs start appearing in late 69. We get a bunch of them. Five of the eight songs on Working Man's Dead during these two shows. Oxo uh, was released in June and Live Dead in November. So lots of new songs, a huge influx of creativity and of new songs coming into the sets in 69. Kind of the end of that Primal Dead period. Also lots of live releases from 1969. You got a Dick's Picks. You got actually, I think two Dick's Picks. Now three Dave's Picks. Although this is the first Dave's Picks from 1969 since volume 10, which came out in 2014. So it has been quite a long layoff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Parts of 25, well now 26 shows have been released if you include their set at Woodstock. So what tour is this on? It's not really. Uh, The first show, obviously it's in San Francisco. It's just kind of a hometown show. Um, And the Dallas show was en route to Florida, where they would play on the 28th, and then Boston for the next three nights, 29, 30, 31. We talked about this in our Boston show, episode four. This was the only New Year's Eve that they didn't play in San Francisco when they had a concert. They played it at Boston. We also talked about the fact that this year, 69, they did three different three-night runs in Boston. So they were really invading that city during 1969 and starting to make a lot of fans in the Northeast. Well, I mean, let's talk about the venues. We got two of them. Take them one at a time. Family Dog at the Great Highway. This was Chet Helms's operating place. We talked about Chet during our episode on 1968's show at the Avalon Ballroom because Chet Helms was operating that venue at the time. Family Dog at the Great Highway, I, as best I can tell, it was really only open for about a year. It was a small dance hall that the Family Dog, which was Chet's kind of hippie uh, cooperative, um, that they operated to have music, live music shows throughout different weeks. The Dead played there 15 times between August of 69 and April of 1970. And there are a couple different addresses that show up when you search for this place. 
interestingly enough. But although I might not have the exact address, knowing that it was on the Great Highway and seeing what one of the addresses was and the descriptions of where it was, I feel pretty certain in saying this. This venue is pretty much on Ocean Beach in San Francisco. Um, It's right between kind of Golden Gate Park and Ocean Beach right there. Like it would be a beautiful place to go see a show because when you come out, you can go sit on the beach for a little while, enjoy that night, that nighttime air, hear the waves. Uh, It seems like a really pretty part of San Francisco to have a show. It was a pretty small venue, modest little dance hall. There's an upper level that runs along the stage right side of the venue. There weren't any installed seats up there, apparently just folding chairs. I couldn't find the exact capacity, but based on pictures that I've seen of the inside of the venue, it would be in the hundreds, not the thousands. So a pretty cozy little place. I feel like maybe the best way to describe it is it was probably about the size of like maybe a high school gymnasium, like that would fit a basketball court or two. Not very big. The McFarland Auditorium was originally a chapel on the campus of SMU in Dallas. It was converted to an auditorium at some indeterminate time between 1920, when it was constructed, and the 1960s. Uh, Martin Luther King spoke there in 1966, but given that he was a reverend, it's kind of hard for me to tell if it was a chapel at that point or if it had become a full-blown auditorium. Um, The capacity is a hair under 3,000, and it's kind of a typical like performing arts center like you might see around the country today. You've got the orchestra level with two balconies stacked on top. So a lot of seats. I mean, 3,000, that's a legit venue. That's about the size of the place that I saw Bob Weir back in March, and it felt pretty crowded and, you know, I mean, cozy, but but full, I would say, with 3,000 people. It's an interesting looking building on the inside with one of the walls that I can see pictures of. It's like exposed cinder block. Um, The floor looks like concrete. So I'm not sure how great the acoustics would have been in here and just kind of an odd looking building in my opinion. It's cool looking, but it's definitely pretty unique. um, I would say one thing that I thought was kind of interesting And it goes to a theory that I have that Dallas is just not a very heady city at all. When you look at the McFarlane Auditorium's website, they have a list of like artists and speakers who have been there and the dead are not on the list. They only played here once this show, but some of the bands that are, are like tool and like some bands where it's like, you're choosing to advertise that like these more obscure bands with much less of a shelf life than the dead were here, but not the dead. And is it because this is a chapel and it's a weird place for these acid soaked hippies to have played a night, the the night after Christmas too. Huh? If we have people who are listening from Dallas, hit us up. Let us know if Dallas is a, particularly heady or even remotely heady city because the people I know who have lived there have universally loved it. They say that Dallas is like an awesome place to be, especially for young people. It's affordable. There's a lot of energy. There's a bunch of stuff to do, you know, a ton of like, um, just historical landmarks around Dallas too. But I've also heard that it is very like yuppie-ish and, you know, kind of buttoned up whereas Austin is kind of the weird place within Texas and Dallas is a lot of like MBAs and 
corporate lawyers and stuff like that. So write us. Correct me if I'm wrong, please. Uh, a couple other things on the shows before we get into the set lists. Um, again, these are two near complete shows. The first show we get in its entirety, the second show from 1226, they cut out a cold rain and snow that wouldn't fit on the CDs. The way that they cut it with that song excluded both shows as they exist on these discs, coincidentally, run one hour and 58 minutes. So it's the same length of both shows. They had to carve it up a little bit strangely to make it fit across the the three discs. I have since gone onto my iTunes and reorganized it to make it basically two discs with one of each show. But like the way you listen to it, Dave, and well, I don't don't know if you listen to it. How did you listen to it? Did you listen to it one show at a time or did you listen to it the way that it's organized by the CDs? The first time the CD way and then the second time I like actually listened to like the full show you know like jumping around in order but the first time I listened to it yeah I you know you rip disc one and halfway through disc one it's it's a change in venue and a change in tone because then it becomes the acoustic show from December 26th so it's it's interesting it was less jarring for some reason it was less jarring than like the change in year remember that from volume 41 on Mm -hmm. disc two where they put that encore from dave's picks 40 at the end of disc two on 41 this probably because it's from the same year it's like there's the same cast of characters and the same sounds um, vocally from the singers but it was interesting but not jarring like on dave's picks 41 yeah that's fair i think i'm sure some people found it jarring but I, I agree with you more. I think it's it's interesting. And it's it's strange the way that they had to kind of carve this up to fit across the three discs because the second show runs across all three discs. You have the first five songs on disc one and then the rest of set two, uh, or sorry, the rest of set one on disc two and then all of set two on disc three. Whereas the first show you get most of it on set one and then kind of the long second set jam, which is tremendous to start disc two. Um, okay. What other, I guess one other note, this is the near earliest recorded dead acoustic show. There was one more, um, a week prior on 12, 1969 at the Fillmore where Phil was late and Jerry and Bob played four acoustic songs. Um, but this one is a full set of acoustic music. Um, so that one was just, you know, four songs at the beginning and kind of a hometown show. Whereas this one is out on the road. Bill was late to get in. And so they just play a whole acoustic set. We, let's come back and talk about that later. On that note, we'll get into the set list. Let's do it. have just heard the beginning of cold rain and snow the opener from 11 to 69 it's just what you're looking for in a cold rain and snow opener i think you got an up-tempo really rocking version it's pretty representative of the era in my opinion 
there's something about TC's organ sound that just sounds like the 60s to me. And on this song in particular, it's like, it just feels like the 60s. And so I don't have a ton of notes on this song. Obviously, they played the hell out of it, Cold Rain and Snow. Pretty typical opener of... 1969, 1968, 67, and even in later years, they played it most of their run. What did you think about this way to start the show, Dave? I agree with you on the, it sounds like we're in that era. For me, it's the, it's like a darker tone with Jerry. He uses like a, a slightly darker effect and it, it gives the song an edge that it would lose in later years, but you can tell it's sixties dead when Jerry starts playing the song. Phil is on it, like from here to the end, but especially here. Um, he's mixed so perfectly. Like he's, his support shines through, but he's not like overwhelming. Um, yeah, not too much more on this. Um, I like, I love this song. I love this as an opener. Me too. You're right. Phil is mixed extremely well uh, throughout this concert. You can hear him very clearly, and he's. I mean, he's just also playing super well. Good show for Phil. Good shows for Phil, I should say. Uh, next, we have uh, In the Midnight Hour. So we go from a Jerry song into a Pigpen song. Um, I really like this In the Midnight Hour. Um, yeah, me too. Immediately, Pigpen's vocals stood out. Like, he was he was coming in strong. Yeah, he was, he was feeling it this night, um, for sure. I think that this is a really good in the midnight hour. Um, I want to look up, if you want to give more of your thoughts, I'm going to look up just how many times they played this song. Okay. Yeah, please do. Um, Just on that note with him, I mean, he's doing some true band leader shit, um, (laughs) especially around the 140 mark where he just like tells Jerry, hey, play your guitar right. Yeah, and Jerry like runs into you know a little solo. So I thought that was really neat, um, and just just good stuff from Jerry after Pigpen motivates him to get going. Yeah, absolutely. They played this song sixty-two times um, throughout their history, but not all of them are with Pigpen. They brought it back as a Bob song in the eighties and then they kept playing it into the nineties. So a relative rarity in the pig pen era, but they did start playing it in 1966 and then they played it all throughout the seventies or excuse me, all throughout the sixties and just a hair in the early seventies, like maybe 10 or 15 times in 1970 and 71. So this song, not all that common. Um, I don't think I loved the, like you said, the, uh, player guitar. What does he say? Player, player guitar, right? Or play it now. I heard, I heard play your guitar, right? Yeah. I, I liked that right, right before the first solo break and Jerry delivers on that a little bit of like a honky tonk guitar solo that he rips off there. That's how I would describe it. I really liked it. Um, and I, I like pig pens, his just general energy throughout the song, which I think you just touched on is great even with small things like the way he enunciates tumbling down, I really like, um, it's cool. It's like, there's like a tumbling effect to the way he's saying tumbling, which is interesting and cool. Not sure if that was purposeful or not, but it it was, I, I appreciated it. Number 11, 
midnight hour on heady version so front page version deservingly so yeah, yeah. Th- this first disc is a very good pig pen disc the third song we've got you know like i said jerry then pig pen and now we've got a bob song seasons of my heart this is a rarity they only play this song seven times all between 1969 and very early 1970 the last time they played it was february 1970 uh according to my according to my stats i have this as the second time they played it the first was in august of 1969 and then this was the second and then they played it one more time in december and then like four times pretty much in a row in february and then never again so kind of interesting that that's the case one one thing i think this is just a nice mellow song I kind of wish they had played it more because I, I quite liked it. I One thing, Jerry's playing sounds very pedal steely. And I don't think that he's on a pedal steel guitar because number one in like the album credits, it doesn't say that he played pedal steel, number one. Number two, I just feel like I would have heard that at some point around the release of this album. I know that Jerry was playing pedal steel on stage with the dead in 1969. And then with the new riders of the purple sage in around this time, he played pedal steel on, you know, teacher children. And he, he was playing pedal steel around this time, but I don't think that that's what's going on. I think he's just playing his guitar and like the bend, the way he's bending notes and the way that he's playing it, it sounds like, lap steel ish uh during this song i don't know what do you yeah, think i didn't get a pedal steel vibe i didn't get that vibe but um i mean good ear on you if he was i just thought that bob's voice was so pristine here and just made for a beautiful rendition of a pretty song I agree. Yeah, Jerry played pedal steel the first time they played this on August 2nd. That's in the show notes for that one, but it's not in the show notes for this one. So I I don't think that he was, but I remember we, I had a quote from him in the episode from 1990 at RFK where he said, once you start playing notes that sound like, for example, a clarinet, you start to think like a clarinet player. And I feel like it's possible that since the first time he played this, it was on a pedal steel guitar the second time he played it, he was thinking like a pedal steel guitar player, maybe. And so maybe that's what I'm picking up on. But in any case, uh, nice nice song. It's cool that we have an official release with a song that was played so, so, so irregularly. I mean, only seven times. So pretty cool. A From song s- so rare, in fact, it's not even on Heady version. We're going to get a- no, no database of this song. And not the rarest song we got on this release. Mm. Teaser of things to come. The next song is not rare. It's Mama Tried. Uh, A good song. This one and Next Time You See Me, they're just like two short, tight little versions. I like the way that they played them both, but I, I just don't really have much in the way of notes. I think that they're both pretty fun versions, but especially on Mama Tried, it's like two minutes and 45 seconds long. I, I really don't have much to, to call out on it. I think it's just that this, because it's slower than we're used to with like a Grateful Dead version of Mama Tried, it kind of felt more true to the original Haggard, like true, true and pure. Um, and I think because of that, it's well liked. It's number 14 on Heady version. 
Wow. That's pretty good. I can see that. I, I do. Yeah. I see what you're saying about like kind of the slowed down, um, tempo, uh, and the more contemplative nature of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nick- then I was also higher on the next song than you, than this next time you see me, I was really into this. Like I thought this was a standout moment of this. this one. Yeah, I, I liked the Pigpen harmonica solo into the Jerry solo that there exists on this song. But yeah, given how short it was and then what comes next, I thought that it was good, not great. But it's so you think it's a standout of the disc? Uh of this first disc, I do. And the masses would agree with me. It's number fifteen on Heady Version, so still on that front page. And if you filter out all the Europe 72, which I mean, you can't do. They played the song so well in Europe 72. Fair. But if you filter all them out, it's the number four version, not counting when they're playing wow. Europe 72. It's impressive. They played the song 83 times. So that is, you know, a, a true top version. We've got a, a whole pig pen festival that this song kind of kicks off where you have this, then good love and then big boss man back to back to back. And I do think that it's interesting to have so much pig pen in one uh segment and i think it pays off he sounds really good throughout this show and in all three of these songs for me i think that the good lovin is the highlight of that suite of pig pen songs it's the longest of the three songs it's the most jammed out there's this really cool drum solo that was a really unexpected twist for me to come so early in the first set and that's a benefit of this show coming before the time when they had the designated drums and space section instead you never know when you're going to get a long you know minute long drum solo with billy and mickey working in concert just i I thought that that was great uh just a a little 15 minute detour into pig pen world and i thought a really solid good loving Mm -hmm. i didn't notice it until after the solo the guitar solo that comes after that drum solo um, until they went back into the main good love and riff, but the tempo on this was quick. I didn't pick up on it um, when they started the song, but then by the end they were. This was moving quick and and a, a really solid good loving. So the the tempo that they have for good loving falls off entirely for Big Boss Man. So at the end of Good Loving, Jerry says, "Bill Bill broke his one of his bass drum heads," and then. <laughs> I think that my favorite like weird little crowd banter of the night is after that Jerry going This evening has been fraught with difficulties. Absolutely fraught with difficulties. <laughs> it sounds like so serious and somber and it's like I haven't picked up on any difficulties. I think that maybe Bob breaks a string before that too and so that's why he says this evening has been fraught with difficulties. But the benefit of 
Bill having broken his kick drum is that Big Boss Man starts with the most mellow of mellow beats because there's no drumming at the beginning. And so it's basically just Pigpen singing with guitar uh, underneath him. And then it continues to be super mellow for like the first four minutes. And then the bass drum gets fixed. And the last four or five minutes are like a nice mid-tempo rendition of this song featuring some really solid harmonica playing too. So it's an interesting version. And um, I, it's so weird. I've listened to that first show from Europe 72 about 70 million times. <laughs> and I'm so conditioned for Big Boss Man to cut like halfway through the song because that one, they like cut the tape. And so you only get like the first three minutes of Big Boss Man and then it just like fades out. And so when it keeps going and you get the full version, every time I was delighted. Like my brain is so conditioned to it, it cutting that I was like, this is great. <laughs> I'm just happy to have the full song. I was happy to have the keys in the second half of the song. I, I thought that the keys were doing their best work of set one here in Big Boss Man. Love it. And and from Big Boss Man right into the Grateful Dead's version of Casey Jones. Yeah, second or first of two that we'll get on this release. This song debuted in June and would be released in February on Working Men's Dead. This, I thought this was just like a, pardon the pun, but like a good locomotive version. It's just moving. You know, it's get on the train. It's coming through. It picks up steam and it's just a, a good solid version of Casey Jones. This song feels pretty well formed for one that they hadn't laid down the album track of yet. I thought. Yeah, I thought the drumming was excellent here. The drum is fixed and they're right back in it and good stuff from Bob on the rhythm. We haven't talked about his guitar playing yet. Um, this was the one from this first disc that he stood out to me on. Um, and then I thought, yeah, the train's moving quick is what I wrote. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a, there are, sorry, go ahead. No, you, you, there are 190 ranked versions of Casey Jones on heady version. Guess where this one falls. If that last show is any indicator, I'm going to say 28th. It's number 189. Whoa. <laughs> Second to last. Wow. What does it have? <laughs> negative votes? <laughs> it has one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Let's give the fans the benefit of the doubt. This one is before the album even came out. They hadn't got this song down to rights yet. I think that it's more, honestly, I think that this is a better version than the other version on from 1226. I think that this is the better of the two versions that we get on this release. So I'm kind of surprised by that. <laughs> I just thought that was too funny. That's yeah, the that, lowest I think I've ever seen a song ranked and doing the research for this. Totally agree. Yeah. That's, but that, that would change. Little teaser for you. Uh uh oh. <laughs> I think I can maybe guess which one is lower ranked. And I think that it might have something to do with the same phenomenon I'm talking about, where it's like they only have this song like halfway formed at this point. Um but okay. Okay, okay, the the masses on heady version. The next song and the last one on disc one that we get from eleven to sixty nine is Dancing in the Streets. Pretty typical 1969 version until the 315 mark. 
Um, at 315, they like really pick up steam, and this becomes a really interesting, cool version, I think, of Dancing in the Streets. Uh, unfortunately, the sound quality is noticeably worse on this song than it is on the rest of the tracks. I don't know if they had to splice in some other recording, maybe because Bear was changing the, the reels at this point or something. I'm just not sure, but the audio around like 125 gets really kind of dull and then it's like kind of pulsating back and forth between your headphones for the next couple minutes. But um, that does not take away from what becomes a, a really good version of this song, I didn't think. Yeah, they start cooking at the end. Yeah, I, I don't know about you. I I think this song benefits from evolving from the evolution into like that up tempo boogie later on. Um, but this they sounded good playing it the way that they played it in the '60s, which was this slower swing vibe. Yeah, I agree. I think I probably like the disco version a little bit better, which maybe some people are shuddering to hear that. But I just think that. It's a little bit more, I mean, it's it's a lot more high energy. All right, so now the next five songs, the last five songs on disc one are acoustic songs that were played to open the show on December 26th, 1969. So Dave, you said that you wanted to talk about this acoustic phenomenon and the reasons why they played acoustically later. Let's do it now. Okay. What did you want to, what did you want to break down about this acoustic phenomenon? Well, I, you can hear Jerry in the beginning say that Bill is on a plane somewhere over Omaha, and then he arrives, what, 45 minutes later? There's no way, right? <laughs> I think Bill was just backstage, and they wanted to play acoustic songs, so they made up an excuse. That's my theory. Interesting. A Grateful Dead conspiracy theory. And, you know, maybe maybe Bill departed out of Omaha two, two and a half hours before and, but there's no way that he was in the air in Nebraska when Jerry made that announcement and then 45 minutes later playing as part of the show. There's no way. <laughs> no, but there's also, in fairness, Jerry would have no idea where he was in the air. He could have been en route. He could have already landed when <laughs> yeah, he true. said that, but they all they knew was that his flight was delayed and so he was going to be late. I'll tell you why I think he truly wasn't there when they started because when he comes in, right before um i think right before black peter you can hear jerry talking to him and he's like cool out man cool out we're gonna play another song like take it easy and so it sounds to me like they hadn't seen each other in a little while because he's like it's okay relax for a second we're gonna play another couple songs i don't know there so i will say i said when we set this up this is near the earliest acoustic recording so as i said there was one from the week before 12 19 69 where phil was late and because phil was late they were jerry was like he said gives pretty much the same speech that he does before this song uh monkey and the engineer that we're about to talk about he's like okay so phil isn't here and so bobby ace and i are going to regale you with some old standards while we wait in this show, he says, so Bobby and I are going to regale you with some old standards while we're waiting around. And then he like steps back for the mic and you hear him go, okay, what are we going to do? <laughs> and Bob's like, uh, we could do monkey and the engineer. And he's like, okay, we'll try that. So this really did feel like, like kind of <laughs> just, uh, let's give this a shot. And then I'll talk about what they, the stage banter a few songs later when that time comes. But 
I thought that that was interesting that you can hear them trying to figure out what to do acoustically. And it's a sign of things to come because then in 1970, they have a run of shows where they do an acoustic set. Probably the most famous one is, I think, the Harper College show uh, at what's now Binghamton University where they have a big acoustic set. You know, there were a lot of acoustic shows in the 70s and then in the 80s, even more famous acoustic runs of shows that they did at the Warfield Theater and then Radio City. Uh, The Radio City compilation was released as Reckoning. So they played a lot of acoustic, not a lot, but they played acoustic shows and acoustic sets throughout the years. This one is a really unique one, though. Before we talk about the individual songs as a whole, what did you think about this acoustic detour? You talked about kind of how interesting it was to switch into acoustic mode after we've just gotten the first set from the first show. But how did you enjoy these acoustic songs? I did enjoy them because they're so crisp, um, which made me question like that Jerry and Bob didn't hadn't played Monkey and the Engineer before. It, it, was, it almost sounded too good. Um, but as a whole, these were dark mournful melancholy acoustic songs that really set a a dark tone until the end of black peter when the brightest light of uncle john's band switched on yeah what about you what was your like initial reaction to those well i agree i love acoustic music and i love grateful dead acoustic music i was so happy on the june record store day drop to get uh jerry garcia acoustic band vinyl that I really like. It doesn't have, I think there's one Grateful Dead song on it. And otherwise it's just a bunch of other, you know, old standards and other songs. This segment of songs that we have on this disc, five songs, uh, two of them are on Reckoning. So it would be songs that would be kind of, I think, familiar with the dead audience at large, uh, Monkey and the Engineer. And uh, I've been all around this world. Both of those, they were still playing in 1980. The other three, Little Sadie, Long Black Limousine, and Gathering Flowers for the Master's Bouquet were much more rare songs for them. I agree with like the mournful note that you said. I think that that's very true. And it's interesting that it's the day after Christmas. You know, the holidays are very happy times for a lot of people and the deepest of sad times for a lot of other people. And so that's kind of interesting to me. I also, one thing we didn't talk about, I have no idea why they're playing this show at a college campus the day after Christmas. That's a little bit strange to me, like the timing of it. Like the students wouldn't be there. So it's just Dallas locals that would be going to the show. I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, I mean, they were on the way to Florida. Maybe it was like a good natural stopping point on the way over from Cali. Yeah. I I don't know. I'm sure that that's what it was. It was just like, hey, we could play a show here. They'll have us the night after Christmas if you guys want to do it. So uh, in any case, I did like them. Um, This Monkey and the Engineer of these acoustic songs, I guess we should say what the whole acoustic lineup is. They played The Monkey and the Engineer, Little Sadie, Long Black Limousine, I've Been All Around This World, Gathering Flowers for the Master's Bouquet, Black Peter, and Uncle John's Band. That was um, that was the acoustic set that they played. As Dave said, Uncle John's Band, Bill, gets into the mix, but the first five songs, which are the five songs that close out disc one, it's I think it's just Jerry and Bob. Phil might join for like one of the songs, but at the end of I've Been All Around This World, 
they're like, Phil, oh, Phil. And then you hear Bob, Jerry's like, where is he? And Bob goes, last time I saw him, he was in the dressing room with some chick. (laughs) (laughs) So he definitely wasn't on for the first four songs, at least. And I think he comes out for the last couple. But um, I don't have a ton of notes about these songs. I'll just say every time I hear the monkey and the engineer get stuck in my head, it's just such a like (laughs) weird little song. I like it a lot. And it's been stuck in my head for the last week as I've been listening to this. Um, anything on that one in particular? Just that it's a Jesse Fuller cover. And if you're like, well, who is that? Um, if you know Eric Clapton's MTV Unplugged album, um, the song San Francisco Bay Blues is like the big, I think that's probably fair to say the biggest Jesse Fuller song. Um, so that's the Clapton cover of that is probably the most famous. Okay. Um, of these five, the first the monkey and the engineer through gathering flowers, which of those five was your favorite? God, that's hard. So probably the monkey and the engineer, just because it's the most familiar to my ears. And it's the one, like I said, that's been stuck in my head. What about you? For me, it was little Sadie. Hmm. Mostly because of the guitar playing dark song though. Did dark song. Did you pick up any, uh, Jack or vibes in that song? No, not until you just mentioned it right now. <laughs> it kind of fits, doesn't it? Those two songs are kind of similar in a weird way. Um, number two, Little Sadie on Heady Version. That was like kind of the standout of all these. I've been all around this world. Number five version of Heady Version was from this this night. So uh, Little Sadie, they only played seven times live. Monkey and the Engineer, they played 41 times. Long Black Limousine, I, I think it's like 10, 10 or 15 times they played that. I've been around this world is more in the 40 range, like Monkey and the Engineer. Gathering Flowers for the Master's Bouquet, they played five times live. It's the most, I mean, a, a huge rarity to come on this release. And that's why I was saying that uh, Seasons is not the rarest song that we got. All five times that they played it were within six months of this show. So I think the first one was a month before and the last one was uh, five months later. That's Th- the song where Bob's suggestion, Jerry's like, you know how to play like, the whole thing. Yeah, he says, do like, you know yeah. all the words? <laughs> He's like, I think so. And Jerry's like, well, go for it, man. I'll try. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's an odd song that is written by Marvin E. Baumgartner, who I'm sure all of you know of just kidding. This is the only song he ever wrote. So I highly doubt it. Um, and originally performed by the Maddox brothers and Rose Rose being the Maddox brothers sister, um, in 1948, probably most famously covered by Connie Smith. And then later by Hank Williams, an odd little song. Also when Bob says master, I kept feeling like he was saying maester which was really odd to me. I didn't know why he was delivering it that way. Um, But overall, these five songs, so I sent a note to our friend Jim in Maryland to see what he thought about this album. He did not respond tragically. Ah, I know, I was hoping so badly that I would get to surprise you with a 
with a Jim in Maryland note on this show. Oh, Jim, come on, man. It's not his fault. I sent him the message way too late, like two days ago. Oh, gotcha. So if he does send us a note, we'll include that on a future episode. But I was curious what he'd think about these acoustic songs because we know that he's big on both worthy Grateful Dead releases and ones that are just worth it. Where it's like, this might not be the best show they play, but it's worth it to have this on an official release. That's how I feel about this segment of five songs. It's like, am I probably ever going to just like throw on Long Black Limousine out of nowhere? It's extremely doubtful. <laughs> am I glad that it's that it exists and that I have it on this CD now? Yeah, it's pretty cool. And I, like I said, I love their acoustic music. It's cool to just hear Jerry and Bob, their interplay on the guitar. Um, but I think we both agree their high point is of the acoustic part is still to come. Yeah. So that's the end of disc one is those five acoustic songs. And I'm, I'm sorry that we didn't get super deep on each of them, but there's just, there's not a ton to say. It's, it's pretty much just Jerry and, and Bobby playing together. Disc two begins with the long second set jam from 11 two. But before that, let's get into the last two songs on disc two. Track six is black Peter, which is the an acoustic song from SMU and track seven is uncle John's band. So Black Peter, it begins, and Jerry's like, hey, there's Billy. And he's like, Bill, take it easy, man. Relax. And we're going to play another song. And then he says, this one's one of ours. Black Peter, this the live debut was just three weeks before this. They had not played it live very often at all. Um, and then they played it pretty much every, time, every show throughout December. So they were working it out um, at this time. And then it would be released in February on Working Men's Dead. Man, this is a good version. There's a really there's a really cool acoustic solo that Jerry plays during this that is I think because this is a a song that he wrote, he's got a better sense of how it works and what he can do with an acoustic solo. But they've been playing this electric for 3 weeks. And so now he's playing it acoustic for the first time and it just sounds phenomenal. It's so cool to know that this is a song that they, he probably just wrote, like maybe the previous month. They just debuted it live. And now there's this huge switch up where, all right, I know you've been playing this and trying to get your head wrapped around it on an electric guitar. Now try it with an acoustic guitar and see how that goes. Mm-hmm. And it goes really well. Yeah, it does. He, It's just a, a slower march of truncated minor chords and a melancholy melody that fits this dark acoustic aura that they've put over the, not the students, but the people at SMU. Um, and, and I thought it built well to just an incredible finale from the nine minute to the nine thirty, Yeah. Mark, just impressive playing. number 90 on heady version which feels low for how how well played this is and for how unique it is i would think that it would get a little bit more love just for the uniqueness of having this cool very 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 early acoustic version i i think that your analysis was great about black peter one word that you used was truncated and 
With the song that comes after Black Peter, Uncle John's Band, I think this is a phenomenal version of Uncle John's Band. There's some truncated playing in that one too, I think. Actually in the next two songs. So we'll get back to it when we start disc three in Casey Jones, but in Uncle John's Band, they don't have this song fully cooked yet. It also debuted in December. They haven't been playing it for that long. And this is only the fifth live version that they had ever played. And it is largely acoustic, although Bill comes into play and is just dancing on the cymbals uh, by the end of it. He's got the hi-hat working a little bit. He's playing some light cymbal stuff. I don't know if it's Pigpen or Mickey that's playing like congas and other percussion, but I I thought this was a great version of Uncle John's band. Phil's high harmonies sound phenomenal, his singing. Mm -hmm. Falsetto Bobby sounds pretty good. And then I like when Bobby yells, um, pick it up, and they start playing it faster. Um, and then I think Jerry has them kind of bring it back down to a little bit of a little hair of a slower, like melody to finish the song. But I mean, overall, I thought it was really good. Bill's accompaniment though, for me is like a standout thing. He's doing some light work on the kick drum, like a little tiny bit, but he's mostly just playing the hi-hat and the cymbal and it sounds really good. I really, really like this uncle John's band a lot. I'm with you. I think the best part of the song was when Bob's like, pick it up. And then Mickey starts going crazy. Um, and Phil is definitely back on stage for this. Cause you hear him get into it too. Do you think he was playing an acoustic bass or an electric bass? Probably his electric bass, right? I think it would have kind of overwhelmed the acoustic guitars. Uh, I mean, maybe he just had the volume turned down really low, but I was thinking he would play an acoustic bass, but I he- guess, you're probably Why would he right. Bring it on the tour if he, if they weren't planning on an acoustic show. So. That's what I was thinking. I was like, would he even have the equipment to do that? Yeah, maybe he just like turned his electric down pretty low. It bears asking why Jerry and Bob had um, acoustic guitars at the ready too, but they did. Yeah. So maybe he did have one. Who knows? Um, okay, so that concludes the first set of uh, the SMU show and the acoustic part of that. So now that we've gone gone through that, we're going to backtrack to the beginning of disc two. I know that this might seem like a convoluted way to talk about this release. Apologies for that, but it really is very mixed up the way that it comes on the CDs. So I uh, hope you're still bearing with us. The first four songs on disc two, before we get into the Black Peter and Uncle John's band segment, are the meat of the jammy primal dead part of that 11-2 show at the Family Dog. You got a Dark Star off the rip. I think it's like 30 minutes long, this Dark Star that opens disc two. And it's a good one. Um, I mean, yeah, 30 minutes and 32 seconds is the runtime on it. And you, I mean, they make you feel all 30 of those minutes. It's a really, really, I mean, great version of Dark Star. It contains multitudes. So I don't know where you want to begin with it, but take it away, Dave. Let's start in about the 6.30 mark where Jerry just starts noodling around with that Indian bead string in a beautiful way. Um, And then, like you kind of talked about earlier, without a formal drums in space, we get the opportunity for like drum solos, but then we get the opportunity here for just a space jam at the 12 minute mark where it just turns into like all 
I don't even know if Mickey had the beam that night or not, but it it is like a space um, nested within. And then speaking of nested within, I think what you were kind of getting at with the multiple layers, um, there's a feeling groovy jam coming in at around 18 minutes um, and parsed out individually, this feeling groovy jam in this dark star is listed as the seventh best version on heady version. Wow. Um, which I thought was very interesting and for good reason. I mean, it gets upbeat and the, the keys start dancing around making some good music. Totally. There's also a Titan. What I, I've read is described as a Titan up jam. I'm not familiar with the, with the song Titan up that they're quoting. Um, I know that it's not the black keys Titan up that would come many years after this. <laughs> But I do like the jam. That's apparently around the 22 to 24 minute mark um, after feeling groovy. And I thought that that was really, really great. There's also very a, pleasant, like very up strumming, very pleasant in that. Yes. That portion. Totally. And there's also some parts toward the like later in this where I'm like, is this Uncle Johnish? Like, is there a little Uncle John's band DNA going on? It sounds like it to me. There are a couple points when I felt that way. And, you know, they wouldn't play the first Uncle John's band until five weeks after this show. So maybe it was just kind of floating around in their headspace as they were trying to get that song written and nailed down or in Jerry's headspace. But yeah. um, it just goes everywhere. I mean, the, the start is so mellow until that like 630 mark that you're talking about, 615, 630. But like the first couple minutes are just like they're real mellow. And then they give it ample space around nine minutes the first verse comes in and then they do like you're saying that upbeat up strummy part there it just goes everywhere it's a great dark star and then and it's the number 22 dark star and heady version wow that that's high yeah it makes a lot of sense to me i think i I mean would where would, would you have it in that echelon of like top 25 dark stars in your mind or like you know call it the top seven percent definitely top ten percent i mean i i think with the like pleasantness of that 22 to 24 minute tighten up jam section yeah because it doesn't get too dark which i mean if that's what you're into more power to you me personally i like it when it turns into a little more of a energetic jam so I would. Yeah. I agree. What about I, you? Yeah. I like the melodic dark stars like this one. I'm, I'm a big fan of dark stars from this era and I like, uh, TC's organ. I like the way that it fits in with this song. I like late sixties dark stars a lot. And to me, it's like, I think that the two eras that I'm most predisposed to loving would be late sixties and 72, like the Europe 72 dark stars are all so good. And this one is just like every bit of what I'm looking for in a, in a 69 dark star with how spacey they get, how unconstrained to any musical notion and any structure they are during this song. And then it's, I agree with you. I like the more melodic kind of upbeat parts when they, when they include those in dark stars. And I think that this one just delivered what I was looking for in that regard to a T also part of it is contextual. The three songs that come after are phenomenal and so I think that that also colors my view of this Dark Star as knowing how it works into this part of the show that, that closed it down.
from here they go into St. Stephen and man is it a good version of St. Stephen really energetic and I think that it's probably influenced by that upbeat part that we just talked about in Dark Star where they I mean they're doing a lot here um really just the transition into St. Stephen I think is great and I think the transition out into uh the 11 is even better they really start teasing the 11 in like the entire last minute of this song um Phil is bubbling up with the the 11 um uh, like the 11 baseline and then Jerry starts playing it and then they're just all the way in and they the way that they kick into that I think also makes this I think that's something that makes a great St. Stephen is the way they transition out of it and they nailed the landing in this one yeah I totally agree with you I don't I don't know what to call it it's like it's not yet the 11 and it's not in the 11 8 time signature but it's like got that 11 flavor right yeah. before it so right before it maybe it's the 10 um still in st st stephen but then yeah like you said they're building up to roar right into the 11 and for the 11 they're cooking like the entire time oh yeah before we get into that anything else on st stephen no i didn't write down the heady version ranking which i would have only done for a reason and it makes me think that it jim and Marilyn just wrote me back <laughs> No way. Swear to God. Oh, that's awesome. Really? Literally. Like, as we were starting recording. How's that for kismet? That is, that's wild. Jim in Maryland, his quote on Dave's Picks Volume 43, for those of you who are interested. And I quote, holy cow, is this good? I had listened to the 11-2 show before, but not 12-26. It's a stunner. Really amazingly good. I mean, Jim, you're on it, as always. I mean, Jim in Maryland, he never disappoints. Guys, um, he really, like, ushered us into this period of the Dead's music earlier this year. You and I had such a fun time listening to 68 and 69 Grateful Dead music. And I'm not surprised that he really likes these releases. But it's good to get some affirmation that our our show's resident Primal Dead fan Jim is uh expert, I would say. He's our primal dead expert. I agree that he's that he's liking these shows and he's liking this release. Yeah. So I'm happy to hear that. Um Saint Stephen number thirty nine version on Heady Version, according to the masses. Which I think is appropriate. I think the version we talked about from that April twenty third version at the Ark was better. But this is still good. Oh, I agree. How about this for you, Dave? Ready for this? This is the hot take of the show, I think. I think this is a better version than the 76 version that we talked about from Boston. I think that the difference is, and the reason why that one is more highly regarded on Heady version, is that the circumstances surrounding it make for a truly special moment in Grateful Dead history. And because of that, I would hold that version up higher than this one as well for the, the context of it. But just from like a musicianship standpoint, I think this version is every bit as good, if not if not better. The transition out of this song and into the 11, we, we already talked about it, but the snare fills at the beginning of the 11 and then the payoff of Jerry's playing at the end of, like the way Jerry's playing at the end of St. Stephen, he pays it off. And around like 150 to 210 of the 11, he is just absolutely burning. I mean, it sounds phenomenal. This is a great song from this era, and this is just a, a 
one of many versions of it that is expertly played. Mm-hmm. And then Jerry and Phil do it at the end too. I mean, they they're shining right at the end of the song and somehow they wind it down so well in like a matter of 10 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, amazingly well, I think because then we go into an absolutely haunting version of death. Don't have no mercy. Great vocals by Jerry. Great playing by everyone. I didn't even really have any notes on this because I was just, every time I listened to it, I was refloored by how good it sounds and just like the heaviness that I feel listening to it coming out of this exuberant version of the 11 and this up-tempo St. Stephen, the last 20 minutes really of Dark Star, which are pretty melodic. And then you go all the way down <laughs> into Death Don't Have No Mercy. And you get, you talked to the word is haunting. I mean, it's, it's truly haunting, but also truly beautiful. Jerry winds us up with the bends and the breaks of a blue solo. I don't know about you. I thought that this was the, this was TC's highlight of the show, um, was this song. And then Jerry is so into it vocally that near the end, like in that last chorus, he like, he's like starts coughing and the band just like starts playing even louder to like compensate for it. Um, I thought that that was incredible. Uh, This was without question this was the highlight of the 11 2 show for me um this death don't have no mercy was incredible a quote from grateful dead of the day.com on this song i think said it better than i ever could this is some serious down and out shit <laughs> <laughs> that it is yeah it is oh my goodness um it's the number 10 version of death don't have no mercy on heady version and it's it's top 10 for a good reason it's fantastic it is don't don't have anything to add let's leave it there Great show at the Family Dog from 11269. I'm so glad to have it as an official release. And um, disc two of this CD, it's hard to make an argument that there's any other disc that is better than that. Like if, you know, there was a thing that you asked me on the Dave's Picks 41 episode that we did, all three of these discs are rolling off a cliff. Which one are you diving for? This one, it's disc two, I think. It's also disc two for me. Yeah. The set two of that eleven two show, and then as we've talked about, mostly for me for the Black Peter, in the twelve twenty six show, and and for me it's yeah. the Uncle John's band, so that's that's uh, a pretty good, pretty good track record. Now with that being said, disc three is a heater. Yes, disc three is great. <laughs> so this is just a really good release. Great job by the Grateful Dead, by Dave Lemieux, Jeffrey Norman. Um, again, Matt J. Adams, the artist, everyone involved, 
just a great job on this release. These two shows. Maryland. Are, He's not involved with the official release, but he, he appreciates it. So Jim in Maryland. As well. and, and to Jim. Yeah. Especially because during the, uh, the Dave Spix 41, that was his comment where he said like, this is great. I, I enjoyed 1977 Grateful Dead, but how about some warts and all primal dead? And here we are just, you know, six months later, Jim gets his wish. So disc three opens with the set two opener from, uh, the Dallas show and disc three is all songs from the Dallas show. It's the entire second set opening with Casey Jones. So, um, this is a very nascent version of this song. It's interesting because in a lot of ways, this version doesn't even sound as fully formulated to me as the 11, two version. Although according to the masses, the 11, two version is much worse than this one. Um, I think that they're both, they're both good versions, but this version a lot of Jerry's playing feels kind of abbreviated, truncated, I think is a word that you used earlier, um, where he hasn't exactly gotten his head around how long he can play at different parts of this song. And so it feels a little bit like stunted has too negative a connotation, but it feels like he's stopping himself short of really letting this song breathe the way that it does uh, on the album and afterward to me. On the flip side of that, though, I thought that he sounded better vocally here in this December version than the November. I disagreed with you. I I think I think they're both fine. This one was just, I guess, a little sharper. Like, again, they've had another month and a half to figure out how to play it. Um, that being said, it's not like one stood head and shoulders above the other. It was like this was a little bit better than the other. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I don't think in either of them, definitely not in this one, they have not figured out the la da 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 coda at the end. Um, And so I think that's also part of what feels truncated about it to me is I'm so conditioned to hear that as the conclusion of the song and it stops somewhat abruptly before they would traditionally go into that. Um, But still a good rock and set two opener. And especially after an acoustic set one, you know, they got the people up and moving for Uncle John's band to close it out and they once they came back out for set two, the people would, I'm sure, still be thrilled to be here in this one. Yeah. Um, our next song, Hard to Handle. This begins um, a nice, nice first jam block of songs going into one another in the second set. Uh, this is a tight version of Hard to Handle. Pretty short. Um, but, I mean, relative to other Hard to Handles of the era. Really great soloing by Jerry, I think, throughout the fourth minute of this song, like between the three-minute mark and the four-minute mark. Um, And then the breakdown right after that, right around like the four-minute mark, I think is really cool. TC is doing some great stuff on the organ around then, and it just it makes for a good version. Pigpen's really feeling himself, too. He's like not afraid to get into the high parts of his vocal range during this song, and I think that maybe because he didn't sing at all in the first set, where it's just Jerry and Bobby playing acoustically, he was really you know, anxious to get after it. Yeah. And I thought like maybe because of that, like nervous energy, like I'm, I'm ready to go. I think his timing was a little off. Yeah. Actions uh, speak louder than words. He has like a false start on that line. Yeah. Um, but for me on this one, it was just Phil going all over the place in a good way. I, it sounded to me like Jerry eventually cut his solo a little short like in deference to Phil just going for it, um, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. And maybe that's another thing with, uh, again, knowing that he played pretty much the first set 
him and Bobby together and let's let Phil get out in front uh, a little bit in set two. Yeah, he sounded great in this. So from hard to handle, we go into a nice uh, China Rider, China Cat Sunflower into I Know You Rider. I'd say this is a solid version of China Rider, but for me, this is not my preferred era of of these songs, uh, especially of China Cat. I, I like uh, later versions of China Cat Sunflower a little bit better than the 60s versions. I think that TC's organ sound during the late 60s and even Pigpen's sound before him when they started playing this song, it's not as... It, it just doesn't sound as good to me as... Um, as like the other pianists that they had throughout the seventies and eighties. So that's a personal thing, not a reflection of like anything bad that's going on here, but that's kind of how I feel about these songs. What did you think about China Rider? I, I agree with you on the, on the keys and piano piece. One thing I do love about the early era ones though, are how like the middle ground between China and I know you Rider is more of a blues rocker Mm. than like a soft softer transition like in that two to three minute window so i really appreciate that and it's probably because of pig pen i would guess Mm -hmm. but that's that's what i appreciate i i was really loving the the keys and jerry interplay around the three three thirty mark of Um, china i I actually really thought of china cat yep sorry and I, i really thought this china cat was cooking i wasn't as high on the i know you rider half um but i thought the china cat kind of stood out as being like easily the better of those two in this little suite interesting i actually like the rider better personally um i understand what so there's the part where jerry's voice really cracks into like a falsetto range during the northbound train uh lyric that kind of sounds funky and maybe takes a little bit away from, um, you know, one of the best vocal moments of I Know You Rider. Um, but I liked his soloing around the four minute mark of I Know You Rider a lot. It was really fiery and I, I just thought it was great. I also really liked the transition out of I Know You Rider and into High Time. Um, yeah, the like drum pounding hardcore ending of I Know You Rider winding down into high time was really really cool yeah it's like it melts after that it just kind of like melts away or like it's like a curtain falls into high time um and then you get a really kind of somber spacey intro to high time that lasts much longer than i was expecting frankly um i thought that it would they would cut it um and then they didn't they let it go for like two minutes before they get into the singing and then it's just a very well sung, well sung version of a song that had not been released on an album, and I'm sure the audience was loving uh, hearing it on this on this evening. Yeah, I didn't think, to be honest with you, I didn't think that we would get something like this after like the slow, dark acoustic set one. But I'm so glad they did play this. Like this was so poignant and just like a perfect sad organ effect. Um, I was really digging this high time. I agree. And I, I think that the organ, that way of playing continues into me and my uncle, the next song. 
There's like a real heavy feel to the organ in me and my uncle. It's a pretty short version, but it's heavy on the organ. And it's, I think that that made it stand out a bit compared to other versions of the song that they played all the time. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of all I have on that one. I, I had a little bit more. I loved what Jerry was doing in the beginning on that Texas tune as he introduced it to the crowd. Yep. And he had an excellent solo. You talked about what TC was doing on the keys. And for me, the cadence of the rhythm felt appropriate is probably the right word. Mm -hmm. Like this, this version felt like it belonged in a saloon. Yeah. Um, Whereas I think it gets, when it gets, you know, disco-y in the seventies that it just sounds to me, not, not as good as it does here. Um, They played so well that Bobby broke a string on this me and my uncle. Yes. I'm going to say two things about this that I think are just going to shock you. (laughs) Okay. I want to know which one shocks you more. (laughs) I really liked this. Maybe the most of any other song on this disc. Whoa. (laughs) That does surprise me. Yeah, I was, I was really digging this me and my uncle and you and I have kind of basically every time we talked about this song, it's been like, yeah, it's a nice tight four or five minutes breeze over it. But this one, I like went back, replayed it. I, I was, I was really about it. Well, me and my uncle went riding down South Colorado, West Texas bound. We stopped over. In Santa Fe, that being the point, just about halfway. And you know it was the hottest part of the day. And the second thing I want to tell you, this version is not even on Heady version. Wow. Just the disrespect. That's crazy. I'll I'll add it before we put this up so that if someone wants to vote on it, they can. But yeah, that's crazy. I, I see what you're saying. The beginning intro with like the like that way that he's playing. Um, that does sound really good. And it, it makes you, it really conjures like imagery of like, you know, like you can picture like a scene in a movie of like someone on like in the old West playing in a poker game and like grabbing the money off the table and running out with like that type of guitar riff playing in the background as he like harriedly runs away. Um, it makes sense. So I, I can see how you would, you would like it. it. It does fit. It's a good version. Um, all right. So from that, they go into dark star. We get the second very long dark star of the night or sorry of the release. This one's shorter. <laughs> it's only 24 minutes long. So still a very good long dark star. This one, they begin verse one a bit more quickly. That's uh, about the six minute mark that they get into it here. So they really let the intro go on a bit. Well, not even a bit, quite a bit longer um, in the first one. It took them about nine minutes to get into it there. And, you know, two thirds that time here. There's a really cool, like shimmery effect that I think Mickey is the one who's playing it on a gong or just a big cymbal. It sounds great throughout verse one. Like, it sounds so good that it makes you almost think like, is there something electronic going? I know that there's not, it's 1969, but it's like, it's so 
specific the sound and he's doing such a good job of letting the shimmer like like ring out and then stop by him like grabbing the gong or grabbing the cymbal whatever it is like so well and so on a dime that it's uh it's just remarkable it sounds so great i wanted to call that out and i I think that overall it's a it's a good version um before i get into my other notes what what did you think kind of around that part i think it's actually right before the first verse i was confused too because like in my head i was like i know he's not doing that but the way that bob is playing up so high on the rhythm it almost kind of sounded like he was strumming a mandolin hmm. but i was like there's no way that he brought a mandolin on right. stage but um it's such like a pleasant high note strumming from him and then we start to get really out there we're not so much out in space in this dark star as we are trapped inside an alien transmission. That's what I put. I can totally see that. It sounds like they're unplugging the jack from the guitar pickup. And you, I'm sure are all familiar with the sound where like you unplug headphones, like halfway from your phone or something. And you hear that like clicking sound as it's like trying to connect. You hear that like strange clicking. It's like the nine to 10 minute mark that stuck in an alien transmission makes a lot of sense based on how, how kind of far out that sounds. Lots of feedback too. Yeah, I mean, so quick, quick side tangent. Um, one of the shows that I've seen in the days between was Rage Against the Machine. I guess that was last weekend. One of the best concerts I've ever been to. Truly amazing. I know that a lot of you who are listening to this probably have no interest in Rage Against the Machine. Totally fair. They are a very unique style and they're not everyone's cup of tea. But the things that Tom Morello does with a guitar are truly mind boggling. He did obviously like his very famous solo in bulls on parade where he's just like kind of cradling his guitar and scratching the vinyl to make that sound. That's like, like it sounds like a DJ scratching. Um, that's remarkable. He played a solo where he put a pick in his mouth and was playing it with his teeth. That was crazy. And then he did a solo where he pulled his jack out up that sounds bad he pulled the jack out of his guitar and was moving it closer and further from his hand to make like a whoa 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 type of sound that was so cool um and i posted a video of um what i identified as their drums in space during their shows and i had no i I did not expect it but it was quite good but that's what i was envisioning during that nine to ten minute spacey alien transmission part was them jerry specifically and maybe phil doing like some really weird stuff with just playing with like you're saying like the electricity and like the all of the equipment going far beyond just like the bounds of i'm going to play my strings in this way and i'm going to use this whole instrument to make some weird sounds Um, and it it paid off for me really well i thought it was very cool then they go into a pretty melodic version and like a pretty melodic segment of the song, like around the 16 minute mark, it's more upbeat and more sonically pleasing, I think, to regular ears. <laughs> and it sounds more like uh, just a melodic, nice version of Dark Star. Which of the two Dark Stars did you prefer? Probably the first one. There's more there. And so it's, like it's not just that it's six minutes longer there's just a lot happening there i think that i would put that one just a hair ahead of this one i would 
I would say that that other one is, I think it's fair to say it's significantly better. Not that this one is bad. It's weird in a good way with that, you know, strange equipment stuff that they're doing. But yeah. I think the other one is just a, a better, yeah, melodic experience is a good way to put it. Cool. Well, what is what do the masses say? What is Where is this one on Heady version? Masses would agree. This is This December one is number 149, so a little bit below half. Wow, okay. Checks out. The first one was really, really good, um, and I did like that one better. Part of what I like about this one, to be honest, is that they it's the only time they played Dark Star into New Speedway Boogie, and that's just kind of cool to me. It's an interesting, unique twist that you're not expecting them to play New Speedway coming out of Dark Star, and especially when the album hadn't even come out yet. Ultimat was like, <laughs> I don't even know, like a month before this? Ultimat was on December 6th, 1969. So this is 20 days later and they've already penned a song about what happened there. And so it's kind of insane actually when you think about the fact that that happened so quickly. They went from, you know, for those of you who don't know, the Ultimat free concert. So the Rolling Stones are concluding, I think their first U.S. tour or one of their first U.S. tours. And they decide they're going to play a free concert at the Altamont Racetrack, which is in Northern California. They have Santana, Jefferson Airplane, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and I think Young um, at that time because he would played with them at Woodstock. Um, and the Flying Burrito Brothers and the Dead were all going to play the show. Because the Dead were the locals, they helped them arrange security, um, which was the Hells Angels. The Hells Angels did not respond very well to the large crowds. There was, uh, during the show, uh, a man named Meredith Hunter um, was stabbed to death by a member of the Hells Angels. Overall, just very bad vibes. The Dead didn't even play their set while they were walking to the stage. They were getting hit by different Hells Angels members and members of the crowd, and they just turned around and left and said, "We're not. this isn't worth it. We're leaving. And so then the lyrics of New Speedway Boogie, obviously New Speedway, um, you know, this darkness got to give is a reflection of what they saw at Altamont and, you know, the kind of the inverse of the good vibes that were at Woodstock just a few months before. Altamont was trying to capitalize on the Woodstock momentum and this big giant free event, but they didn't reach that level really at all. So it's kind of cool to me that this is three weeks after that, uh, that evening that was fraught with difficulties to use Jerry Garcia's words. And you can tell the, it's very raw, this version, the vocals, I don't even think are fully formulated yet because there's a part where it's around the three minute mark. It sounds like Jerry's still trying to figure out the lyrics. He's doing the thing that a lot of people do when they're singing a song and they don't know the words where it's like, like it's like, he's kind of trying to figure it out as he goes. But one thing that already sounds great are the stacked vocals. The harmonies between um, Jerry, Phil, and Bob sound really good. And overall, I, I think it's just cool to hear it, hear such an early version of this song. Yeah, it is cool. They definitely haven't figured it out. But I thought it was like a, a fun, upbeat time. The masses were not pleased that they hadn't figured it out. <laughs> I think this is a program first. This is the last place. New Speedway Boogie, number 49 out of 49. Wow. 
That's wild. It is um, only the third version of 59 live renditions that they played. So, yeah, that is not... The masses do not like it. I don't know. I'm, I'm more kind of... Like, we've said this before, but, like, kind of who cares about that? With, like, heady version where oh, it's yeah. ranked. It's interesting. It's an interesting note for us to talk about as we talk about these songs. Um, yeah. But it's like, is this sig- substantially worse than others? I don't think so. It's just it's just that it's raw. Um, warts and all, baby. Warts and all. That's exactly right. Well, Dave... When I texted you about this album, I said that there was a song that I thought was going to be your favorite of the second show, and it's the last song, Turn On Your Love Light. I thought that you would really like this version, and so I'm a bit surprised that uh, me and my uncle took the mantle of your favorite song on disc three from a song that I know you like quite a bit, and a version that I think is really nice of Turn On Your Love Light. So I'll- And a version that I liked quite a bit, too. This, uh, this was a good love light. Good way to send the people home. Yeah, absolutely. And you can tell from Phil's like rambunctious bass roar in the first minute or so that this was going to be a fun love light. Yeah. So he and Jerry, they're they're building for the first few minutes of the song. They do that this little like round and around playing is how I would describe it between like three minutes and three thirty where it's kind of circular what they're doing. Um, typical for I mean, not not wildly out there for what how they played love lights. Um, but I mean, I just thought it was really good in, in the beginning. It sounds great by the end. It has a very gospel-y vibe to me and they are playing in a, a building that was built as a chapel. So it's kind of fitting, but TC's organ helps with that kind of sounds like a church organ, like someone's testifying or something, um, by the end and Pigpen just kind of sounds like he's preaching. Bob's vocals have a similar vibe with that, like kind of high pitched church tone that a lot of people sing with. <laughs> Or when he's doing the shine on me that uh that just has that vibe to me um overall i thought it was a really good version i was very happy when it came on it put me in a great mood uh coming out of this listening experience and and i liked it quite a bit yeah and just the raw energy like in the finale kind of emphasized by mickey on the crash symbol like that really loud symbol um was really really neat yeah and then as soon as love light ends i loved what um what they announced to the crowd thank you you just had it done to you by the grateful dead ladies and gentlemen the grateful dead don't forget cta and young bloods tickets go on sale monday at all the usual places cta and young blood thank you for dropping by but I just thought that was like such a great way to end that show. Yeah, I agree. It's a cool, cool little moment. I also like when you get to hear anything like that, the concert promoter or whoever it is that's talking to the crowd. Uh, probably my favorite example is the one from the show that we did earlier this year where the guy's like <laughs> the first show, he's like, uh, this is a band from California. <laughs> and then the third show, the one that we listened to, he's like, this is the greatest fucking band in the world. <laughs> like the, they've just totally won him over this, uh, this little announcement at the end. I think it's pretty cool. It's also kind of nice to, cause the, he talks about who else is coming, right. And tickets being available. Yeah. It's kind of cool to hear like, Oh, okay, well that's what was going on. Maybe some of these people were going to that show a couple weeks later too. So 
Yeah, pretty cool. Well, that's it. I mean, I know this has been a long episode, but as you just heard, there are so many songs on this release. We were really spoiled. And two two really good shows from 1969. So let's land this plane, Dave. All right. Well, I've already kind of teased mine as we go. I was so excited. I couldn't wait till the end. Well, re- remind but the audience. What, what are the two songs that you're taking? One from each show, right? One from each show because there's, yeah, there's so many songs and we've got two complete shows. So... Alex, from the November 2nd show, if you could only take one song to be on this imaginary imaginary playlist that you'll build about the Grateful Dead going forward, what 11-2-69 song are you taking? Oh, it's so hard because I'm not going to take Death Don't Have No Mercy. I know that you want that one. I'm going to leave that one for you. You can take. We can share. <laughs> no, I'm gonna take the. I'm gonna take the eleven. I think that it's a great version. Can I also have the last minute of Saint Stephen? Can you give me that? Yeah, I can give that to you. All right. So I want the transition out of Saint Stephen and then the beginning, the like that end into the eleven. I think it's a great version, and um, I think it really sets the stage for an awesome uh, Death Don't Have No Mercy. But I think it also stands on its own two feet really well. I am remiss not to take the dark star which i think is great um i'm actually a little surprised you didn't take that dark star i know i'm having uh second thoughts now that i'm <laughs> like looking at the set list well if it if it helps sway you you already have an 11 on your playlist you're an right 11 from 10 12 1968 at the avalon ballroom <sighs> so does that sway you at all I think it does. It shouldn't. You should, you should go with your gut. No, it, I, I think that you're right. I think I should take this Dark Star. I loved it a lot. It's just, I listened to the 11, this version of the 11, like seven times this week. I just kept going back to it. It just, it really like clicked with me in some way. And I listened to it in so many different contexts. I listened to it at the gym. I listened to it while I was doing dishes one night. I listened to it while I was on my way to work and then listened to it again when I started doing work that day. Like it just, this song just works for me really well but I, I don't think I have a dark star on my playlist yet. And if, if there's a dark star to take, it's this one, this is a phenomenal dark star. So, uh, no regrets. We're going with dark star from 11 two. And are you taking death? Don't have no mercy. I am. I loved it. Yeah. You can't go wrong there. It's a, it's a great version. Um, now I will say in a little, little bit of a teaser, spoiler alert, the next concert we're going to talk about, I might regret having taken this Dark Star <laughs> when we get to that set list. We'll talk about that in just a minute. All right, I went first for 11 too, so why don't you bring us, take the leadoff spot for 122669. Which song are you taking from the McFarland Memorial Auditorium show? Well, I was, I was torn, and I think, I think I could probably give you a heart attack and a stroke if I were to take me and my own. <laughs> so instead I'm going to take the acoustic black Peter. Nice. R- really good stuff. Um, kind of really unique in the acoustic show. And you, you know, you never know when one of those is going to crop back up again. So I'm going to take the black Peter and give a little honorable mention to that. Me and my uncle. Okay. Um, pretty good. Um, I'm going to take, 
two songs. You can't stop me. I'm going to take Gathering Flowers for the Master's Bouquet and New Speedway Boogie. No, I'm just joking. Heady version melts, as I say. I'm taking the lowest ranked <laughs> New Speedway. <The> <laughs> Um, there are a lot of, there are a lot of songs I really liked, uh, from this show. I'm very tempted to take, uh, Uncle John's band. And actually I think I will take Uncle John's band. It's a very unique one of a song that I really love, um, off of an album that I really love. Obviously, you know, we named our show, uh, after it. And I just think it's a unique, fun version. I really like what people, what the different, what the different members of the band are doing. And, um, it might be a, a bit of a controversial thing that neither of us took either the love light at the end which i think was really good um the dark star was good we have other a lot of other really good songs throughout this show but i do think that it's fitting that we both took an acoustic song um uncle john's band not maybe not purely acoustic but acoustic enough yeah i think it part of the thought process it was important to do that because of how how unique that was yeah in an official release i thought I agree. I hope that um, it's been a while since we've gotten a show from 1970, and I, I don't know if they've ever done one from the 1980 acoustic run. I guess that they probably wouldn't because those have already been released in compilation form on Reckoning and Dead Set, but um, that's all right. It was cool to get this one. Shouldn't look a gift horse in the mouth or want something more in the future when we just got this great one. And I'm sure that I'll be listening to this one for a long time. This Dave's Picks... Um, frankly, unlike the last one, which I did like quite a bit, I enjoyed listening to the last Dave's Picks volume 42 a lot. This one I put on my phone and I think it's going to live there for a while. The last one, after we talked about it, I didn't really go back and listen to it very many times in the intervening months between, um, I guess late April and now this one, I think is going to stick with me a bit longer. It's can be hard to find 1969 dead shows that are released in high audio quality and where the playing is just as good as the quality. And this is definitely one of them. Yeah. Anything else on your end before we wrap it on up? I was just going to give a couple of programming notes about our next couple of episodes. Mm, yes. Um, so before we go, if you don't already follow us on Twitter at working man's pod, Instagram working man's underscore pod, please do. We try to be pretty active, especially on Twitter. Um, and uh, we'd love to, to chat with you there. Um, also you can send us an email at working pod at gmail.com. We'd be happy to hear from you. Uh, we do take show suggestions. We've gotten a few really good ones. Um, and including from our friend Jim in Maryland, who we've talked about throughout this episode. And, you know, we'd be interested to hear what song, what shows you want us to talk about. The next show that we're going to talk about is the what's now known as the Sunshine Daydream show from Veneta, Oregon on August 27th, 1972. We are just a couple weeks from the 50th anniversary of that phenomenal show. Now, this is probably going to be a surprise to you too, Dave, but I'm going to lay it down for the audience. So allegedly, a little bird told me that the good old Grateful Dead cast is doing at least one episode about that show to coincide with the 50th anniversary. In recognition of the fact that we will never be able to go as deep on the lore of that show as those guys who do a phenomenal job with their show, I think that we're going to do a quicker one where we just talk about the music and we don't need to talk about what happened before. If you want to hear about that stuff and the lore is phenomenal, it's a very interesting story of how they got 
up to that farm, that space in Veneta, Oregon to play this amazing show. Um, you should listen to those guys because they're just going to cover it better and in more depth than we ever could. They have, they have all the resources and they're, they're pros. So we'll talk about just the music, which is really great. So that'll be our next episode. Um, after that, we're still taking suggestions, I believe. AKA we don't have a plan. So <laughs> we have let a list. Yeah. We have a list of shows that we're going to talk about, but uh, we don't know which order yet. So if you have suggestions, let us know. Anything else, Dave? None. That's it. Well, in that case, thank you for listening and we're happy to be back in your, in your podcast feeds and we will bid you good night. I'll bid you good night. That's it. That's it. You got it.